1: Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. We appreciate you joining us each and every week. Very excited about this week's guest. We'll get to him in just a moment. Want to remind you guys to check us out on all the social media sites Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Hazard Ground, Hazard Ground Podcast. Just keep up with the show and everything we have going on. Of course, want to continually remind you about our promotion with Amazon as we have such an amazing deal with the holidays coming up. What a way! to show some love to veterans. All you gotta do is go to hazardground.com, that's our website, and click on the Amazon banner right in the middle of the home page. That'll send you right to Amazon. Guess what, do all of your regular shopping as you normally would, and a percentage of what you spend goes to the Hazard Ground Podcast, and we donate those percentages back to some of the amazing charities and organizations you've heard about here featured on the Hazard Ground Podcast. So it's an easy way to help out veterans as you're doing your holiday shopping. Again, hazardground.com. Go click on the Amazon banner right in the middle of the homepage, and you can support veterans everywhere all over America. Also, check out the sponsors on the Hazard Ground website. Just click on the sponsors button right on the top of the page. You'll see companies like Patagonia, Knife Country USA, Terex, REI, Cabela's. All these people support the Hazard Ground podcast, and by supporting them, you'll be supporting the Hazard Ground podcast as well. So we certainly appreciate All the love you guys have given us here in the Hazard Ground community. Lastly, again, leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. Those help out so much and spread the word of the show. Now on to this week's episode. Our guest this week is a quadruple amputee, a former Marine Corps corporal who lost all of his limbs in Afghanistan in 2010 when he stepped on an IED. He has survived PTSD and a suicide attempt and is living his life to the fullest these days. And he joins us now on the Hazard Ground podcast. Todd, nicely welcome. Thank you for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. All right, just an incredible tale, Uh, a quadruple amputee, uh, living life every day as best you can to the fullest. Just so honored to have you on and so great to talk with you. Let's start all the way back at the beginning, though, and why you joined the Marine Corps. How you got in?
0: Um, Well, it was 2007, and, you know, I was doing construction at the time, and military was always something I wanted to do. But back in 2001, when I was going to sign, 9-11 happened, and I was still underage, and my mom was like, I'm not signing for you. So, you know, I met a girl, then I got a good job, and things were kind of looking up for me, so I just kind of put it on the back burner, and then the economy crashed, and I was like, you know what, I'm getting out of here, I'm going to do what I wanted to do in the first place, and I'm going to go join the Marine Corps.
1: What did your parents say when you, when your mother said, when you told them you were going back in, in 2007?
0: you know, at that point, she wasn't happy, but she didn't have a choice. And, uh, you know, when, when I was 16, I watched a movie called Saving Private Ryan. And uh-huh. That movie that movie, kind of made me go, you know what, I wonder what those men were thinking, and I owe it to them to make sure that what they went and saved is preserved.
1: Why the Marines, then? If it was Saving Private Ryan, those were Army guys.
0: Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> I, I wanted to challenge myself. Oh, as okay.
1: Well. <laughs> what are you trying to say? Army guys aren't challenging?
0: I'm just I'm 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 gonna uh go with I went with the Marine Corps
1: there you go fair enough um were you dating the same girl when you decided to to, to enlist in the Marine Corps did she have any objections
0: no she was uh well past and over with so
1: okay so it was just you going in all by yourself and moving forward um yeah. once you start your Marine career was it everything you thought it was going to be I mean was boot camp tough for you was your individual training tough for you tell me about those experiences
0: Um, camp. I mean, it's not that it wasn't tough. It was, it was tough and the discipline aspect, you know, not many guys, you know, you're not used to that. You're not used to not being able to scratch when you have a scratch. It's getting your body and mind used to, uh, you know, doing what you're told and not doing what you're not supposed to at all. So that was the harder part, the physical aspect, not so much. I've always been a physical guy, but you know, getting used to the mental part, that was, that was tough.
1: So what is your first duty assignment uh, after you finish up all your initial training? How quickly do you get to your first deployment?
0: Um, I got out of SLI. After after boot camp, you go to SLI, which right. is School of Infantry. And then after School of Infantry, we were immediately flown into North Carolina over in Camp Lejeune, and, uh, and I'd say, what, six, seven months later after training, you're off and at it. All
1: right. So, I mean, were you excited about the prospect of deploying? Was this one of those things that you um, – you know, felt like this is why I signed up, and this is what I wanted to do.
0: Oh, most definitely. I mean, that's that. They asked me if I wanted to do when I signed up. They were like, "You got a 84 on the ASVAP, You can do whatever you want." I was like, "I want to do infantry," and they looked at me like I was crazy. And I was like, no, nope, that's what I want to do." And like, okay.
1: Why so, did? I mean, does anything else? Did they even try to talk you out of it?
0: I mean, they, not really they they were just like you can do whatever you want you can do this you can do that you you, you can do have any job you want in the Marine Corps and I was like put me in 03 wow so that's where i went
1: all right so uh, when you head to your first deployment you go to iraq your first of two deployments uh, what was your mission there what were you told and kind of what was your experience
0: um <clears throat> when i got to iraq we were up in the northern anbar province but there wasn't much going on at that time. It was more political, making sure that the people got to go to do their votes and, you know, security aspect and things like that. So there wasn't really much going on in Northern Iraq at that time. Um, It did give you a a sense of what was going on there, you know, which I think helped with my second deployment. Um, You got to see the culture and all that other, all that other stuff. I mean, you were high alert. There was a couple IEDs that went off and things like that, but nothing, nothing like I experienced in
1: Afghanistan. Did you get to see any combat while you were in Iraq, or no?
0: Um, no, there was there was zero shots fired in Iraq while we were there. Now was um, that,
1: it, was that a bummer for you?
0: Um, not so much a bummer. I mean, it was
1: everybody came home,
0: so that was a good thing. Right. You know? You're not looking. I don't know about a lot of other guys. I know I went there to fight, but. If I didn't have to, well, then why, you know?
1: Yeah, you know, it's interesting, Todd, because we've done a lot of these podcasts here, and everybody sort of has a different uh, a take on that. Not only, you know, different Marines have a different take on it, but even the branches of service have a different take on it. You are one of the, you know, most of the Marines we've talked to, are, it's not that they're looking for the fight. They're just ready for it, right? Because this is what you, this is the big leagues. This is what you get called yeah, up I mean, to do.
0: It's what, what you train for, but like I said, if, if everybody comes home, that's a good deployment for me. I don't, it doesn't matter.
1: All right. So when you get back from your first deployment, uh, what time frame are we talking about? And then give me the kind of next lead up before you get to Afghanistan.
0: Um, we started another workup. We got our, our uh, younger guys, I guess, well, your boots or what you, whatever you want to call them. Um, we start training with them, working up we ended up having to deploy early because the unit in front of us was getting a little bit hit heavy. So we left again in October when we got back. Oh, it was a little under a year before we left again. And, uh, I ended up getting dropped into, uh, the, what was it? Into Afghanistan.
1: Well, uh, October of 2009. Um, yes. Okay.
0: So I left in 2008, april for iraq and uh got back november 2008 left october 2009
1: okay so it sounds about right as far as deployment is concerned now when you get on ground in afghanistan what's your mission there and how different was it from iraq
0: oh uh our mission there was to move south we were the tip of the tip of the spear and i was the tip of that spear uh i was the assault squad we were down in the Helmand province and it was to keep the enemy from coming up north to get to Marja. We were there before Marja. And so we had to stop the enemy from getting more into Marja. So they were uh, waiting for us when we got there.
1: Prior to your injury, what was the toughest part about that deployment going through?
0: Uh, the toughest part was, you know, these guys were ready to fight, but, you know, you'd get back after a day of getting shot at all day. And the hardest part for me was, having to not, they wanted to know what we were doing the next day. And I always knew I just let them do their thing and having to tell them in the morning where we were going, you know, some of their faces are like, damn it, we're going back there again. But you know, that's your job. That's your mission. So you try to prolong it as long as you can.
1: Did you ever feel like in the grand scheme of things, certain days, like your efforts were futile?
0: Uh. Not – I mean, there was a few times where it was like we'd go take ground and come back, and I got frustrated. But, you know, I'm not the one in charge. I just do what I'm told. So, you know, I have a job to do. I do it. I can only voice my complaints, and where it goes from there is uh, not my in my hands.
1: Prior to your injury, did any of your guys get hit, or did you lose anybody?
0: Nope. All 12 okay. of my men
1: came home. You know, when you're going through this whole thing – um. Did you know at the time sort of the toll that combat in and of itself was taking on you?
0: Um, you it's stressful. I mean, you know, it's stressful. The anxiety's high, high, but you just let your training kick in. You know, we had Terps always be on, on their radios. They're about to shoot at you. And I'd always tell them, don't tell me because I'd rather react than act. You know, why was that? Because your training kicks in. It's fight or flight. You know, you're trained to do this thing. And even if you're worried about it as soon as that first round snaps off your instincts kick in and you're you're doing what you're supposed to be doing
1: that's interesting i mean i'm sorry to cut you off i just i'm I'm trying to work through it in my head through my experience in combat would i have want to known ahead of time if shots were coming or not um i i wonder i mean it's not that you ever felt unprepared i assume but I, i just wonder you know the idea of knowing ahead of time would Initially, makes me think like I'm more prepared for what to do.
0: Yeah, but you got to think about it this way: you're more prepared. You think on what you're gonna do, but then you start overthinking it. You know, and you're thinking, okay, well, what if I do do that? And the shots are coming. If you react, I think it works a lot better. I mean, it did for me in any way.
1: No, that's, I mean, listen, hey, to each their own. I'm not uh, telling you you're wrong by any stretch of the imagination. Right. I'm just kind of working through the whole my, my experience in in my head and wondering if there was a situation where I wouldn't have want to know. I, I mean, for me, and I don't know if you were this way, you talk about being the tip of the tip of the spear, you know, th- that your, your sensory perception is on overload, right? Like the whole time, like you, your head is constantly moving and you're looking around, everything looks suspicious. And, you know, it, it, I, I think that the knowledge, at least something would, would eliminate some of the variables, I guess, kind of what I think.
0: Yeah, it, it, it all it's all scenario situated, you know, it, it depends if yeah, if I was at a choke point, yeah, I'd want to know if I was gonna get shot at. But when you're just <laughs> when you're strolling along through muddy fields and you don't know what's going on and who's who and what's what, it's just better not to know.
1: What what was it like with your guys going to did any of your guys struggle with being there or did they ever, you know, voice concerns about having to continually do the same mission over and over again and the danger of everything?
0: I mean, guys are gonna complain. You know they're going to. Yeah. That's just the way that's just the way the cookie crumbles, but they all bucked up and we did it anyway.
1: All right, so is is the volume of contact that you're dealing with consistent on a day-in-day-out basis does it pick up at any point in time or slow down?
0: Um it was yeah, I was in the kill hours of what or what they called the kill hours. It was like 11 to 3 or something like that mm-hmm. and every afternoon I was out there taking a beating, but uh yeah, it it was consistent from 11 to 3 in the morning or in the afternoon, and every day I was out there, sometimes you'd get in three or four firefights a day and just hope that by the time you were done doing it, you could get back and at least have dinner.
1: (laughs) Ever have the thought that, I don't know how many more times I can keep rolling the dice before I throw a bad number? You know, like, ever have the thought that, how how many more times can I come back unscathed before something bad has to happen?
0: No, there was no time for that. I mean, there was times when we didn't know where fire was coming from. And me as a squad leader, I just put my body on the line and take off running. Hey, you guys better figure out where this is coming from because I'm not doing this for nothing. Every time.
1: Ever have a bad feeling on a certain morning or that you were about to go outside and do patrols or anything like that?
0: Um, I had a bad feeling when I first got there. Uh, You know, I remember thinking to myself, man, if I get hit, I don't mind if I lose my legs, but I hope I don't lose my arms. And you know, Permission.
1: What was what, what preempted that thought? What, what, where did that come from?
0: Uh, we knew it was going to be bad, and we knew what we were going to be dealing with. So it was just like, if anything were to happen to me, I hope it's not this. And it just kind of happens that way.
1: All right. Well, let, let's fast forward to March of 2010. Um, that morning of your injury, take me through the events of the day. Is everything normal? Is it? You know, kind of business as usual kind of deal. What was the mission that you had that day?
0: Um, it's it was kind of business as usual that morning, but I wasn't even really supposed to be out on patrol that day. Why? Uh, we had a unit, a squad out that was set in an overwatch position on a on a certain thing that they couldn't figure out where it was, so they needed me to go out and locate it, so that way they didn't have to lose their element of surprise. So I had to go do a fake routine patrol to look for this item, and we ended up finding it. And on the way back, I halted the patrol to cross a bridge and took that step.
1: What do you remember uh, as you're... All right, so you go out there and you find what you're looking for, you're called in, you feel like mission success. Now the easy part is just getting back home, so to speak. What do you remember about the initial moments leading up to before you took that fateful step?
0: Well, uh... I just remember, well, now I, I, I should have known better because there was always this man out on, uh, there was a little store down there, a convenience store, and there was no one out. And He was usually always out, and I should have known better. He They, they weren't there. I didn't put two and two together. We were close to going home. Everybody was getting complacent at times, and I took that step, and as soon as it, it happened, I was like, motherfucker, they got me. They finally got me.
1: What was the feeling as soon as you put your foot down? Take me through what happened to your body, your mind, everything.
0: Oh, I just remember flying through the air in a cloud of dust and uh, landing down by the canal. And I only know I landed by the canal because I remember the water splashing up on my face. And uh, they dragged me up the hill. And I just remember laying there, looking up, seeing my bone hanging out, and things were missing. I was like, oh, shit. So I was screaming a couple times, and I remember telling myself, thinking to myself, quit screaming like that, because if your guys hear you screaming like that, that's the last thing they're going to remember of you. Just shut the fuck up.
1: So, okay, how quickly does it take you to gather yourself overall to recognize what happened? Because, I mean, you're speaking with a lot of clarity about the whole thing.
0: Yeah, I mean, I was uh, I was, a, a lot, I don't want to say in and out, but I was there in the moment. uh I think from, from the time I hit the ground to the time they pulled me up the hill it was only about two minutes. They had the tourniquets on in a matter of seconds, and the corpsman came from 400 meters away. So, I mean, by the time he got there, the tourniquets were already on, things were on. They had to cut open my throat to get air in and everything.
1: What did what were people saying to you? Do you remember what was the corman saying? You, your buddies, what were they saying at the time?
0: Yeah, I mean they were just like nicely stay with us. I remember one time my corman reached down, and smacked me a couple times. I was like, stop fucking smacking me! I'm here, leave me alone.
1: <laughs> I got enough problems. Stop slapping me. Uh, um Okay, so uh, d- are you surprised that you don't, or that you still remember everything with this much accuracy?
0: No, I mean I I wondered when I woke up, you know, because I was still a little confused at what was going on because. I had bandages on and it felt like my hands were there. So I asked my wife, you know, how, what was going on. And she let me know my hands were gone. So that kind of confirmed of what I saw the first time. And then uh, I had gotten some pictures from one of the nurses at Camp Dwyer along with a letter. And uh, I, she, one of the images is exactly what I remember seeing. So from there, I've kind of realized that I, I wasn't, you know, dreaming that, that I was actually there when, I was awake when it was all going on. So,
1: Does any of that, you know, shock you? I mean, I don't know what the right word is here, Todd. I mean, is it one of those things where, like, when that confirmation happens, what are you thinking?
0: Um, That I'm kind of glad I was awake because, you know, I could feel myself gasping for air. And I kept telling myself, just breathe, breathe until you get on this helicopter. And as soon as you get on that, you'll be fine. If they can get you to where you need to go, you'll be all right.
1: Did any of your buddies come and see you while you were at the base in, in the hospital or no? Were they not allowed to? They, they,
0: they were still on deployment. Okay. I actually went and seen them come home.
1: So, okay. So take me through, once they get you off the battlefield, they airlift you where? To Kandahar or?
0: Uh, Dwyer. Which is where? Um, I don't know exactly where is okay. located. I think it's in the Helmand province at least. And then from Dwyer, I went to Bastion, Camp Bastion, a British base. Yep. Okay. And then from there, they took me to Landstuhl.
1: What, how much of this are you awake for? You just told us after the fact.
0: Um, well, I was awake, I know, until they put me on the helicopter. And I think that's kind of when I, you know, let myself go a little bit, but mm-hmm from what the nurse tells me in camp Dwyer, i was still awake while they were operating on me because i was answering her questions by blinking my eyes so they kind of had to stop what they were doing at first and they kind of had to stop what they were doing to reanalyze how they were going to do all this while i'm still awake and so they just kind of had to keep doing what they were doing and then they got me to land school and they flew my family there because they didn't think i was going to live So they flew him out there to fly me with me back to the States. They didn't know if I'd make the flight.
1: Did they tell you that at the time? Did they tell your parents at the time?
0: Um, Yeah, that's what they told me. You know, they they were like, we're going to get you out there. We're not sure if he's going to make it Um, from. I didn't find this out until years later, but uh, I had died three times on the table.
1: Which which table where Dwyer or
0: I, I don't know. I just know that General Conway. Had told my mother at a golf tournament that you know they didn't think I was going to make it because I had died three times. He came and gave me my purple heart in the ICU.
1: Holy crap! And you obviously you don't remember any of that. I mean, that's you know oh, I
0: remember general. I don't remember dying three times. You know, <laughs> I, I remember Conway coming and giving me my purple heart while I was all in the ICU, still strapped to tubes. And
1: uh, I, okay, uh, I, I'm trying to figure out. You tell me what point in all of this do you take stock and inventory and in everything that's happened and what the rest of your life is going to be like?
0: Um, at, at, at that moment, you're just happy that you're still alive. You know, you, you look up and you see your family all smiling and stuff and you know, it's going to be a tough road, but you just kind of put your head down and, you know, do the work.
1: I, I, you, I, I sense that happiness in your voice. Like, you know, we, we've we obviously interviewed a, a bunch of amputees in this whole thing. And generally, and I'm, again, I'm painting a broad brush here, Todd. But, you know, there, there's a lot of people when they speak about, you know, the injury and the incident that happened, you know, they, they can talk about it. But the tenor of their voice drops a little bit because it is a life-altering reality that you're in. But I don't hear that from you.
0: Well, when I joined, I knew what would just happen. And, you know... What makes me happy is if this were to happen to any one of my guys, I I don't know where I'd be right now. But it happened to me and my 12 men came home. There's 12 moms that are very happy and I came home. So that's all I can ask for. You know, you go into a shitty situation and the best thing that you can do is come out alive, whether it's missing a limb or not.
1: All right. So you get back to launch school. Um, Your family's there. What are they saying about your prognosis? What are they telling you about what's next? Uh, when do you, um, what were they feeding you information-wise?
0: I don't know in Landstuhl. I I didn't even wake up until like three days. Okay. So I you... remember, yeah, I kind of woke up, I think it was around Easter time, because I remember the doctors coming in and asking me if I wanted anything, and the first thing out of my mouth was, get me a beer. Yep. So <laughs> <laughs> they ran down to the corner grocery store and bought me a six-pack of Corona, and I took one sip of it, and I was like, no, water, give me fucking water.
1: <laughs> really why yeah. was it so bad
0: it was just my mouth was so dry from not being able to have water and gotcha things like that it was just wasn't that it was bad it was just not quenching it made it worse <laughs> uh,
1: while we're having a moment of levity levity here let me ask you because i i've heard this from everybody every male who is involved in an explosion at what point in time did you uh check to make sure all the uh the parts are still operating
0: Oh, yeah, my buddy said I asked him that on the helicopter. He said I looked over to him and said, is my shit still there? He's like,
1: yeah, it's still there. I I laugh at that because in in doing this podcast for almost two years now, um, anecdotally, I did not think of that. But as soon as the first guy who interviewed who got blown up told me that, I said, you know, I probably would have done the same thing. I probably would have asked the exact same question.
0: Oh, yeah, I mean, I'm missing half of my body. I want to make sure I I can do that. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Well done, Todd. All right. Um, When do you get back stateside?
0: Um, it was March 26th, the day I got hit. I don't know exactly what day I got back to okay. the inside. Um, I don't even remember exactly what day it was when I woke up. I think it was like three, four days later, but it was a very long ride inside the ICU fighting infection and everything else. And, you know, I had to keep going into surgery to have revisions on.
1: Yeah. That was amp- my next question. How many surgeries are we talking about here?
0: Um, I don't know exactly how many it was before I woke up, but I had like three or four after I did for bone revisions and things of that nature. Um, it was a lot of staples and stitches and, you know, you just wake up and you're all sewn back together, a lot of pain. Yeah. But, you know, you just kind of deal with it.
1: I hope this doesn't sound like an ignorant question. Um, cause obviously I've never been through what you've been through, but at any point in time, did you feel like less than human? Like, did you feel like inadequacy? Is that the right word? Did you feel, uh, you know, worthless?
0: Um, You know, there was a point when I was married at the time. And, uh, you know, when she walked in, I kind of just was like, you know what? Don't don't come here. You know, you got better things to do than have to deal with this. You you know, I'm not going to be able to take care of you. Who I don't know how I'm going to do this, but just go. And she, she stayed, she stayed
1: the whole time. Is she, are you still with her?
0: Uh, no, we ended up getting a divorce due to not, you know, we're going separate ways in life. We're still good friends. We talk every now and then, but it just wasn't working out. That w- was
1: aspect. Was that uplifting for you that she stayed? Were you surprised?
0: Um, Yeah. I mean, it was, it was good to know that, she, you know, she wasn't going to leave, but at the same time, I felt guilty for her having to take care of me.
1: Did you feel guilty about your parents?
0: Um, I mean, I feel guilty when anybody has to take care of me. I don't want someone having to right. wipe my ass, you know. That was the first thing I learned how to do. I was like, please, teach me, give me something to wipe my own butt because I'm tired. I'm a 27-year-old man. I don't want someone wiping my ass.
1: That's fair. I mean, no, I mean, I say that with all honesty. I, 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 the simple task that you had to learn to redo, what's that like?
0: I'm still learning I mean every day is something new you imagine trying to open up a freaking jar with your wrist and your elbow I mean it's 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 a different it's different aspect of having to live and right now I'm only eight years old at doing it but you learn something new every day
1: let's back up for a second when do you get released from the hospital and what kind of condition are you in
0: um, When I got released from the hospital, they had told me that I would probably be there for four years, one year per limb, because you have to learn how to do all these things. And um, about a year and a half in, I, or prior to that, I was ready to go probably around nine months. I told them, I was like, look, the only way I'm going to learn how to do any of this stuff is to go out into the world. I can't keep coming here and building fucking Legos every day. So...
1: Is that they, what they were uh, having you do? Was that well, just more like you know built motor, motor skills
0: you, you did tasks like sweeping floors like you know i i can do this at my own house like what are you going to show me that i can't learn so i was kind of adamant on getting out of there at the point cuz i had already learned how to use the prosthetics i knew what i was you know going to be working with now it's just figuring out how to use what i've got kind of like being a marine you work with what you got and you figure it out
1: to that end, how much of your Marine initial training and everything you learned there, how much was it applied to everything you had to do in the new life that you were living?
0: Well, like I said, it all went back to that mental aspect of you got to do it, get it done. This is how it's going to be and deal with it.
1: <laughs> what is, when? so when you get back home, what are some of the biggest frustrations? I mean, outside of wiping your own backside, what are some of the biggest frustrations you're dealing with day to day?
0: Right when you get back home I. Task-wise, it's just learning how to, you know, live again, how to take care of yourself without having to have someone take care of you. Um, I mean, parts are always breaking on the prosthetics. Now you got to deal with the VA and trying to get things fixed. And I'm still going through that battle. But uh, it's just, it's part of life now. and I have to do it. And if I don't, no one's going to do it for me.
1: Now, I, I asked this question almost loaded, but, you know, you chose to leave the hospital. You wanted out because you wanted to start living your life, and you didn't want help from anybody. But the counter to that is that you're alone, right? I mean, you're, you're by yourself, and you have a lot of time to sit there by yourself. Was that uh, detrimental?
0: Um, Yeah, when you're by yourself, it you know, it weighs on you. you I was, you know, it, it's not that you're by yourself and— Yeah, it kind of is a loaded question. Um, Yeah, I don't really know where to go from there. I mean, you just kind of do what you have to do. I mean, if you need food, you're going to figure out how to eat. And that's just how things work in life. You're not going to sit back and wait for someone to feed you. You got to do it. I
1: I guess where I'm leading is sort of at what point in time does anger set in, frustration, um, any of those things?
0: Oh, after you do it for a couple of years, you know, it's like I'm just – I'm can't do this anymore. Like I'm I'm constantly dropping things and cleaning things up and people are having to clean up after me. And you start to feel sorry for yourself after a while. And you can't, you can't do that. You got to understand that you're going to need help. And it's more of my mindset than what was actually going on. You know, I'm a, I'm one of those people that I take pride in being able to take care of myself and, you know, being able to be self-sufficient and when that's stripped from you, you kind of feel like you've lost a little bit of yourself. But I've learned that after my incident in 2016 that you can't do that, man. There's, there's got to be another way. There's too many people that rely on you even though you rely on them.
1: Right. Um, before we get to 2016, I, I do just want to take a moment because I ask you about thinking backward. How many times did you think about that day, uh, you know, that, that day in March where you stepped on the IED and what could have gone different, what should have gone different, what might've happened. Was I even supposed to be there kind of deal? You know, does that whole sort of thought process enter into your mind?
0: Um, no, I don't let it because like I said, I had a job to do and whether or not I was supposed to be out there or not, it wasn't my decision. You know, they asked, they sent me a mission. I took it and that's the end of the story. I mean, and I'm like, I, like I said, prior, as long as none of my men were injured, I don't care what the outcome would have been.
1: Okay. Um, so you're, you're, you're living this life, and obviously you know, you're know you having tough days and struggling, and, and do you feel yourself sort of spiraling downward into a depression and things of that nature, or is that you just you don't catch on to it?
0: Um, it's, it's a rough, rough road. Um, sometimes you catch it. Sometimes you don't. Um, you just got to know that when you're there, it's time to come back out. You got to start building from the ashes again.
1: What were some of the darkest moments that you had leading up to your event in 2016?
0: Um, just, you know, being alone. I had been divorced. I was, you know, you miss the camaraderie of the guys. Cause some of them are still in. And you just miss being with the guys. You miss, you miss being... Uh, for me, I would go back in a heartbeat. I wish I could right now. I mean, it's just one of those things that... I found something I was finally good at and I felt like it was stripped from me. And that's my major depression. There's, that was my career. That was what I've always wanted to do. And now I can't do that.
1: Any of the guys come and visit you at home?
0: Oh yeah. We, we get together all the time. I still see a lot of them. So
1: no, I meant while you were going through this initially, did they stop? by? Oh, um,
0: I mean, there's been visits, but like this had been an, in 2016 accumulation of feelings and thoughts and ulterior motives type deals that, you know, I was just, I was done at that point. I, I, I'd I'd had it.
1: Right. Well, I mean, if you don't mind, let's unpack some of that because um, you know, a lot of what we deal with with people who come on the podcast are, are people who deal with PTSD. Um, Did you, were you one of the people who refused to acknowledge that PTSD was a real thing? Um, Were you somebody who, who, heard it and just discarded it and said no that's not me or was this something that you were aware of
0: um I was aware that PTSD was probably going on but I myself wasn't you know I was like there's no way I don't have it I don't have flashbacks to when this was going on and I don't you know have night terrors and all that I don't have PTSD but that's not PTSD it's a lot more than that it's been explained to me after since 2016 and you know I'm not ashamed to say that I probably I'm more than likely do have it. I mean, I, I have to, there's no way that I don't with the emotions the feelings and everything that I deal with.
1: What are some of those emotions and feelings?
0: I mean, hypervigilance, just, you know, always being on alert, making sure I know what's going on at all times. Those are things that you're trained to do and that are always going to be there. You know, it's just one of the things that's always going to be there with me.
1: I I mean, I'm it's funny. I'm the same way. And I tell people this and they look at me a little bit cross-eyed, you know, if I ever go out to eat, or whatever. I never sit with my back to the door. I always right. find every point of egress and entry in a room and I know how
0: to get out of that restaurant before
1: I walk in. Exactly. I mean it's the same thing. I I don't I don't ever or even when I go to work out if I'm in a gym, I'm in a gym, I don't work out and I look for all the points of entry and egress and and if something goes down, where am I going? It's just a natural thought process that you have that never escapes you. Now, some of that, you know, may seem somewhat we just call it vigilant, but as you describe, it's it's almost ingrained to you in a negative way because you can't ever escape the fact that, oh my God, bad things shouldn't happen to me every single day.
0: Right, and that's what, I mean, you're just, you're trained to do that. You're trained to constantly think, well, what do I do if this happens? What do I do if this happens? You're yep. constantly yep. running scenarios. You're constantly, and it never stops.
1: So as you're going through this and, you know, things are getting darker and worse. I mean, are you drinking more? Or are you oh, more withdrawn? Drunk, drunk. I was
0: drinking heavily, you know, I was...
1: Did, Did anybody notice?
0: I mean, yeah, I mean, people noticed that I was drinking heavily. They all told me I should slow down. But to me, I was like, whatever, I'll do what I want. You know, I didn't care then. I was, whatever, you don't like it? deal with
1: it. Todd, did you think that anybody should have said more to you? Like, I, I, I almost envisioned the conversation happening. Hey, Todd, man, listen, why don't you take it easy with that stuff? And you're like, I got it. I'm under control, you know, and it's your buddy. It's your friend. They, they know you're in a tough spot. The last thing they want to do is make things harder on you. But do you feel like if somebody would have really grabbed you and said, dude, stop, you're going to hurt yourself. This is bad. You know, like it, it, it might have snapped you out of it.
0: I doubt it. Really? <laughs> yeah,
1: I'm
0: just <laughs> I'm, I'm stubborn guy, man. I'm going to do what I want when I want. and No one's going to tell me any
1: different. Are you still that way now?
0: Oh, I'm still stubborn, but I know, it, <laughs> I know what's good for me and what's not. You know, there's a, there's a a as you get older, you learn moderation.
1: All right, so let's lead up to the second darkest day of your life, or maybe this one is more dark than the day of your accident. But um, you try to commit suicide. What's going on in the days leading up to it? I mean, are you at a breaking point? Or does it just sort of hit you one morning when you get out of bed?
0: Um, no, I mean, it's kind of been leading up. I'm in the house by myself all the time and I have no, nothing to do. You know, I can't go out and do the things that I love to do, which are like, I used to be an adventure guy. I would jump off of cliffs and go hiking and be outdoors. And now I'm stuck inside with barely being able to feed myself. And so, you know, after a couple of years of doing this, you're happy to be alive at first, but now you're like, fuck. You know, why didn't you take me? What, what am I here for? So you start dwelling on that, and things just got really bad really fast.
1: Uh, do you remember some of the thoughts you had?
0: Yeah, pretty much like I'm done with this. I don't want to do this anymore. You know, I'm done struggling. I'm done being frustrated every day because my hand won't grab what I need it to or it's dropping things when I don't want it to or – things are breaking down nothing's right i'm tired of nothing being right and you know you just it, it consumes you
1: and, and uh, so what <coughs> i know things are consuming i'm trying to figure out maybe you can articulate it how do you get from it's consuming to i i need to stop it all
0: um when it's taking over your life and you're you know like i said i was drinking at the time and it just seemed like the easier route would be to be not have to do this
1: did you did you think long and hard about the way you wanted the final day to be the final moment to be or was it very impetuous
0: no i knew going in like i shot myself in the chest hoping to hit my heart cuz i didn't want my family to have to deal with my head being gone and all that kind of stuff but uh yeah i mean i knew what i was going to do i just I, it just didn't work. <laughs> I missed it. I nicked the heart and went out the back, took out part of my lung.
1: Uh, let me ask you a functional question, because I just don't... How did you actually pull off shooting yourself um, with your prosthetics?
0: Uh, I had a revolver, and I just put my thumb in there. it. It's You'd have to see the way the prosthetics work. Okay. But, I mean, I can shoot a revolver with my two prosthetics. I just used one that time and turned it around and squeezed the handle and the trigger at the same time and pushed it together.
1: I I read uh, in an account that you wrote your mom a note prior to doing this.
0: Yeah, I did. Uh, I don't really remember what it says. It was probably along the lines of, you know, I'm sorry, things like that, that nature. But I wrote it on my phone and tossed it on the bed and figured they would find it.
1: I mean, so... At no point in all of this did you ever think that you would cause more harm to your family by hurting yourself?
0: No, not at all. Um, and that's kind of what has drawn me to I will never do it again, no matter how bad the days get. Because when I woke up that time in the hospital bed and looked at all their faces, it wasn't like it was when I woke up in in the hospital. And from after war, it was, you asshole, you did it to us this time, not the freaking enemy, you did you did this to us. We didn't. We made it through one time. Now you're doing it to us again.
1: Were you surprised when they had that reaction?
0: No, I mean, I wasn't surprised. I, I felt ashamed, guilty. I felt terrible. But, you know, it, it was what it was. I did what I did. And there's no taking it back. All you can do is be a better person from there.
1: What, was that truly like the epiphany, the wake up point for you that I've got to change things? Or was there more struggle?
0: There's still more struggle every day, I mean, but it's the the how you how you handle it. I mean I'm currently going through therapy now at the PTSD clinic, and things are getting better for me, and I can only hope that if there is anybody listening struggling that they'd probably do the same thing because you know it doesn't hurt to reach out for help. People need it. Don't be ashamed, you're not as tough as you don't have to be tough anymore, you know right. go get it go get the help.
1: Todd, how'd they find you?
0: Uh, my mom did. She found. She heard something. She thought that uh, I might have fallen on the deck because of course I was drinking. She thought I might have tripped over something and fell. And she came up and seen me laying there. She thought I was passed out at first until she touched my shirt and I was covered in blood.
1: Oh, so she was in the house when you did it?
0: Yeah, she was on the second floor.
1: Oh my God! Wow. Uh, I mean, I just usually people find an isolated spot for this, I guess, but I mean i assuming it's not that easy for you to have done so.
0: oh, I went out on the jack, I wasn't inside the house oh okay,
1: all right um <coughs> so after this moment you wake up and you know your family kind of gives you the tough love that you need um how are day to day things different now than they were prior to trying to take your own life
0: um they're they're not really different, it's just uh my mental aspects a little bit different you know i i know things are going to be tough and they're going to frustrate me and they're going to bother me but it's something that i i myself alone have to deal with and no one may ever understand that except for the other guys that are in the situation and right. you know that's just the, that's the cross i've been burdened with
1: are you more willing to accept help now
0: Oh yeah. I mean, it's not that I'm willing to accept it. I'm I'm learning to go, okay, I do need help. Help me. You know, I'm, I still won't allow people to just help me. I still feel guilty about it, but I'm learning to be able to ask for help instead of thinking I can take it all on, on my own.
1: Is that some of the hardest parts that you have to deal with or no? Is that the hardest thing to overcome
0: for me? Yeah. I mean, like I said, I'm a stubborn guy. I like to, I, I, value myself on being able to self pride and all that, you know, I'm a Marine. I'm, I'm the best of the best. I don't need help, but it's like, okay, there comes a point in time where do you want to keep living that life and be angry and frustrated because nothing's going right? Or do you want to say, you know what, I have to do this for the rest of my life. It's time to give in and say, I need
1: help. Is there anything that's better about your life now than prior to, March of 2010. Anything better? Yeah.
0: Yeah. I have a great fiance and, you know, I'm living life now and I'm having a little bit of fun with it. I'm trying to accept the fact that I'm not going to be able to do the things I used to love. So I need to find something else to love, you know?
1: What, what are okay. some of those things now that you're doing that you weren't doing before?
0: Um, I just bought myself an RC car. Um, <laughs> I'm learning how to drive that thing around and fit work on it and, I'm going back to school, Uh, you know, I'm just trying to do different things, you know, learning how to use technology to my advantage. I mean, I can still read books, I can play games online and things like that, so.
1: For those listening, I I guess I just asked this question broadly, tell me just some of the things, some of the normal things that you do that everybody else does who isn't missing all four limbs.
0: Um, I mean, I just went bowling the other night. Really? Yeah. So, oh, why not? I might not be good at it, but at least I'm still bowling.
1: (laughs) Exactly. I mean, you can drive?
0: Uh, yeah. They set me up a car for driving. Um, yeah, I mean, I just, I can still do a lot of normal things. It's just the, the tedious, you know, tedious tasks that get to you.
1: Right. How much physical pain are you in every day?
0: Oh, at the beginning it was a lot and it's it's still there. I mean, every day I st- still have leg pain, but I've learned to kind of manage it and cope and deal with it. It's now become a thing of it's normal.
1: How do you cope and deal with the frustrations that got to you before that that aren't, you know, leading you down a bad path now?
0: Um, like I said, I'm talking to someone. I it's good to have someone to go and just dump all the shit off on that you know is not going to judge you they're there to listen their opinion's not going to change your view you know you can tell them whatever you want and then you just leave and you feel so much better that you want to go back next week because you're like this is going on this week i can't wait to go tell my therapist that
1: your your fiance, her coming into your life um if you're okay with talking about her i mean Obviously, she was walking into a situation unique. That's not like anything else. I'm sure anybody else she's ever dated before, unless she has a history of dating amputees. Um, But what has it meant to you to have somebody like that accept you and the life that you have to live at face value?
0: Uh, It means a lot to me. I mean, it, it shows you that, you know, not everybody's as shallow as you think they are and that people can love you for who you are. You just have to show them the real you.
1: Is that hard for you? Um,
0: no, not really. I mean, being the real me is, is easy. It's just, you know, having to deal with how people accept it. Some people can, some people can't, some people don't understand, some people will never get it. But uh, there's someone out there that will. And I found that someone.
1: Well, that's amazing. I listen, I'm, I'm incredibly happy for you from that standpoint. and It's perfect words, uh, eloquently said. So, um, God bless both her and you and, and the relationship you guys have together. I mean, listen, hope it lasts forever. Um, you know when you look back on your your marine corps career what do you miss the most
0: um being around the guys and training i mean like i said i i was there to train marines that's what i was good at i i loved it and um that's what i miss the most is just being around the guys and hanging out and having a good time and you know, have, going into a shitty situation together, knowing that that guy to the right and the left is having the same shitty time. And then you laugh about it.
1: <laughs> right. Um, what's your relationship like with those guys now? I know you said they still come by and see you, but I mean, is, is it just uh-huh. like every time you get together, it's the same as if you guys were, you know, just oh, going yeah. through training?
0: It picks right up where it left off. I mean, we all make the joke that, you know, not much that, not that much shit baggery should be in one town at one time, but Uh, it's, it's, it's a good time. I mean, we've all kind of drifted off a little bit since the years go by, people's lives start to change, you know, we still contact each other, but it's like, once we get back together, it's right back where we left off again.
1: Any regrets about what's happened to you?
0: None. I mean, like I said, I can't change it. I knew it could happen. The only regret that I do have is that, you know, I lost a lot of friends and that's about it.
1: Why did you lose them?
0: Uh during Afghanistan and, Oh okay. You, know, the- you mean that way, I'm sorry.
1: Um, I, I thought you meant no. after the fact. Okay. No, no. I, that that I understand. Okay. Um where are you now with everything? Um, what's the future for you? What do you want to accomplish? I mean what how how does the I don't know, I don't want to say the rest of your life look like it's a long time, hopefully, god willing. But, you know, in the short term, what what are some of the goals you want to accomplish?
0: Um, right now I'm gonna finish school. Um I'm working on trying to get some of this VA stuff worked out where guys aren't having such a problem. I've, I've learned that I'm quite a mouthpiece for that. You know, when I complain about it, people are going to listen because obviously of the situation I'm in. So I, I have a lot of goals. It's just getting them done.
1: What do you, what's your response to people who look at you and feel guilty or look at you and, um, you know, they they express condolences because of your your situation and things like that does that bother you
0: um yeah it doesn't bother me for say i mean right I
1: bothers know, not the right word but i mean you know I, I
0: know people are curious so i don't mind answering questions but don't stare you know if you got a question come ask me i can <laughs> see you looking at me
1: <laughs> <laughs> i don't mean to chuckle at that but i mean you say it so you know matter of fact like bro just ask me i'm i'm here like you know i can talk right, i still have a mouth
0: Sometimes I'll wear a shirt that says, keep staring, I might do a trick, you know, (laughs) come on.
1: (laughs) That is awesome. That's funny as hell. Um, Does anybody ever approach you and ask or no?
0: I mean, yes, people do. And sometimes it becomes burdensome. I'm trying to go to Walmart and get things done, too. And I can't even get up aisle three without 20 people asking me what's going on. Or on Veterans Day, you know, oh, thank you. It's like, God, you've seen me in here a hundred times, and now all of a sudden it's Veterans Day, and you want to say hi? Get away.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I, I appreciate that sentiment on multiple levels. Trust me. Um, yeah, look, I, I think that you, you have such a, a good attitude about this. I mean, I, I've said it multiple times about kind of the tenor in your voice and everything else. And uh, I, I feel like what you're expressing to me, you're, you're in a good place with everything. I mean, are, are you fully there yet? Or do you, do you still have more to go?
0: No, I'm I'm in a good spot. I mean, all you can do now is joke just laugh about it. And I've always kind of lived that life. I try to make it, you know, to where people don't feel sorry for me. It's like, look, I know I'm here. I'd like to make jokes about it. It's okay. It's have fun with it. It's what I've got to deal with. These are my carbs and now I'm playing them.
1: Is there any, is there any physical task that you want to do that you haven't been able to do yet? Like, you know, I don't know, maybe just participate in a in a marathon or a swim or any anything on like kind of a bucket list that you've created now that, hey, these are some of the physical things I used to do or didn't get to do before I lost all my limbs. Now I want to still do them.
0: Are you kidding me? I hated running when I had legs. Now that I don't have them. <laughs> I have
1: an excuse not to run.
0: Why would I want to run a marathon?
1: Yeah, but you were good at it, you said.
0: You said physical. I was good at, run- I, I was good at running, <laughs> but I hated every minute of it.
1: All right. So beyond, beyond anything like that, any other physical tasks?
0: Um, poof i mean plenty of them there's a lot of them i mean i'd like to lift weights again but i just it's not i don't know if it's physically possible or if they'll ever come out with anything to where i can i mean i'm missing my one arm at the elbow so it's like okay but you know it's just trying to figure out what you can do still and what you can't and then accepting the fact that you can't do that anymore so you got to move on
1: well i mean look uh I feel like the way you talk about it, there there aren't many things that you wouldn't try or aren't willing to even give a go at. Um, do oh, you... no.
0: I just broke my nose last summer trying to do a backflip off my boat. So. What?
1: Oh, <laughs> did you short it?
0: Well, I used to do them in a pair of my shorter prosthetics. Uh-huh. At this time, I had a heavier set on, so when I came around, I didn't make it all the way. And when I hit the water, my life jacket slowed me down, and my prosthetic kept coming and it hit me right in the nose.
1: Oh, man. <laughs> So,
0: hey, you live and you learn.
1: Right? No more backflips off the boat. So, No,
0: no more backflips off the boat in those legs.
1: Right. Seriously. Um, you know, if we asked your mom uh, and your family about things, about where you are now, what would they say?
0: Um, they say I'm in a lot better place. Uh, you know, at the beginning when it first happened, like I said, a lot of them were kind of concerned because, you know... They almost kind of, I don't want to say they wished that I wouldn't have made it, but they knew how hard it was going to be for me because of the type of person I was and the type of athletic activities I used to like to do and things like that. So they didn't know how I was going to take it. But uh, I mean, they'd say I'm in a better place now than I was. Can I get better? Always.
1: Well, Todd, look, I, I, I don't know how to thank you for, for joining us, being so honest and, and, you know, just being your candor on everything that you've been through is amazing. Um, you, you talk about it very routinely, and uh, there's a, certainly a, a resoluteness in your voice that, uh, as you've said, you're willing to play the cards that you're dealt, and, and for that, I commend you. I mean, listen, it's not an easy hill that you're climbing, but I have no doubt that you will reach the top. Right. So from that standpoint, look, I wish you nothing but the best of luck, um, continued success, and Uh, Whatever you want to do, uh, backflips or or otherwise, I I hope you get to do them all and continue to be that mouthpiece uh, for not only amputee veterans, but veterans everywhere, because uh, as you said, when you talk, people listen, but I I can't thank you enough. Todd Nicely, thank you for being part of the Hazard Ground. Yes, thank you. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com and if you like the show don't forget to subscribe rate and review on iTunes thanks for listening we'll see you next time